a wonderful way to start a beautiful Sunday, listening to that, uh, those beautiful voices. Please join me as I read our prayer of, illuminate, of illumination today. O oh God, lover of humanity, joy of creation, pour out your spirit on us that we may hear your ancient words in a new key. Inspire us to sing your praise in every land and with every generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. The first scripture reading today, the first lesson is Psalm 111. It's found on page 551 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson comes from the book of Judges. We're going to be spending several weeks looking at the life and times of Gideon, one of the judges of Israel, one with whom I particularly identify. A lot of the judges are strange characters, and it's hard to identify with them. There's some 13 judges. But Gideon is one who comes across as very human, and I think as we go through and listen to his life and story, there are things that we can pick up that apply to our life and times as people of faith as well. So let us begin by just reading the first 32 verses of chapter 6. The balance of this we will look at next week, the balance of this chapter, but let us listen for the word of God. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. 
and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they and their livestock would come up, and they would even bring their tents as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted. So they wasted the land as they came in. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not given heed to my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abbeezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a kid and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abbeezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, in proper order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering, with the wood of the sacred pole, and you shall, which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and of the townspeople to do it by day, he did it by night. When the townspeople rose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the sacred pole beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this? After searching and inquiring, they were told, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. Then the townspeople said to Joash, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. 
But Joash said to all who were arrayed against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, then let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is, uh, to say, let Baal contend against him, because he pulled down his altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We're going to spend several weeks with one of my favorite characters out of the Old Testament, this judge by the name of Gideon. I've been drawn to two different characters in the Old Testament over the years. Going back, back to my junior high days in a Sunday school class, I told our class at 8 o'clock this morning about this, but there were two pictures on the room of the Sunday school class when I was in junior high. One pictured Daniel and that iconic uh, time in Daniel's life when he was in the den of lions. And the other was Gideon and his band of 300 descending the mountains with torches in their hands and blowing their trumpets and the Midianite camp beneath them being routed. And so Gideon and Daniel have both uh, appealed to me and I've preached on them several times during the course of my ministry. But the judges are, are fascinating people. Uh, when we say judges, we don't mean a, a judge in our sense of the word. They didn't really serve judicial functions. This was, they were more like military leaders commanders of the army who were raised up in a time of threat and crisis and commissioned to lead Israel in its battles against whoever their oppressor or attacker may be. And as I indicated, it's difficult to identify really with some of the judges, but Gideon is certainly an exception for that. So much of I like the uh, name Gideon, unlike Mephibosheth that I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, I really wanted to name one of our sons Gideon. We'd already chosen a name for our oldest son. And so when we learned that we were going to have another bo uh, boy, I uh, told my wife, well, let's use the name Gideon. I'd just recently been preaching on Gideon. And she said, I don't think so. I said, I love that name, and I don't know anyone named Gideon. It's a strong name. It's a biblical name. She wanted to name our youngest son David after my brother. So we compromised and named him David after my brother. <laughs> And then when I got a golden retriever, I said, this is my chance. And what a great name for a golden retriever. My wife said, no, we should name him Ralston because that's the family that gave us the dog. So we compromised. And Ralston lived with us for 10 or 12 years. I never got my Gideon. Uh, but we can talk about Gideon nonetheless um, because I think we can identify with him. First, a little instruction. If you brought your own Bible, open to the first chapter in the book of Judges. I'm going to ask you to do something that will help you understand and interpret the lives of the judges. You don't need to write in a pew Bible, but if you brought your own Bible, write a circle. Put five S's around the outside of the circle. You can indicate the direction, but you can go either direction. It all works out. But if you can remember five words beginning with S, you will know the outline for every judge story in, in the book. Um, so the first word is sin. The people sin against the Lord. They do evil in the Lord's sight is often how it's said. And what happens as a result of that? They're invaded. They become enslaved. They become uh, servants of their enemies. That's the... Uh, Slavery is the second uh, S. The third S is supplication. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. 
And then the Lord responds by sending a deliverer in the form of one of these charismatic judges to lead the people in a time of threat. And so they experience a salvation. That's the fourth S. And then the fifth S is silence. And usually the Bible will say that the land was at rest, the land was at peace, or there was silence in the land for 20, 40 years, something like that. So you can just follow that um, outline, those five S's, and you will know the story of all of the judges. Just to illustrate this, if you would look in chapter 3, in five verses now, we're going to see that all five S's. Now, the story of Gideon takes about three chapters to get through the five S's. But uh, listen, this is when Othniel is raised up as a deliverer. Verse 7 of chapter 3, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of God, the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. That's the sin. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of King Rushan Rathashathaim of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served Cushan Rahathaim eight years. That's the slavery. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, there's the supplication, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave King Cushan Rahathaim of Aram into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rahathaim. And there's the salvation. And then the land had rest for 40 years. There's the silence. So you see how it progresses. You can jump in at any point in the story and you'll find one of those S's and you know what's going to happen next. This is a situation as Gideon is called to be a deliverer. The Midianites have invaded. Uh, the Midianites were these fierce nomadic tribesmen. They roamed the Arabian Peninsula. This is a scene right out of the Arabian Nights. Uh, they would be joined by the people from the east, the Amalekites, who would come from the desert of Syria, called Aram. In the biblical, biblical Syria is Aram. And so these peoples would descend upon Israel, and they would wait until it was harvest season, when they're about to reap the benefits of all their hard work in the fields. And so these... People would come in, they would eat up all the crops, they would take their animals, all the uh, Hebrews would flee to the mountains to hide in caves and strongholds. Uh, they were terrified of the Midianites, one of their uh, long-term enemies. Uh, the Midianites had with them a threat that was fearsome. Uh, they had camels, almost too many to number. This is the first time in recorded history where camels are used in warfare. And the camel was the stealth bomber of Gideon's age. There was no defense for it. And so they didn't know what to do, but they fled. They were hiding. Uh, they thought the Lord had abandoned them. Uh, and surely they were probably ready to give up. Um, if you look at the last verse before chapter 6 begins, you see that um, uh, the, the land had had silence for 40 years. So there had been a period of peace. So again, they start worshiping the, the idols and the gods of the land rather than being faithful to the God who had delivered them from Egyptian captivity. Uh, they are enslaved. They cry out to the Lord for help. He sends a prophet just to remind them of what he's already told them, that he was their God, their deliverer. They were not to worship the gods of the people among whom they were living. They were to serve only him. And so... The Lord decides to raise up a deliverer 
for God, his people once more. And so it is, he sends his angel to meet with this man Gideon beneath the oak of Ophrah, where Gideon is hiding out in a wine press. He's grinding up grain, probably just to get enough uh, flour to feed his, his family. He too has fled to the hills, scared to death because of uh, the threat of the Midianites. Uh, and when the angel appears to Gideon, he says two incredulous things, two wonderful things, both of which can come down through the generations to bless us as God's people in our time. The first thing he says, which is absolutely unbelievable to Gideon, is the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. How do you think Gideon felt when he heard that? He's probably thinking, well, you must be insane. How could the Lord be with us? Here we are hiding, overrun by our enemies. Our crops are destroyed. You have the audacity to tell me that God is with me. Well, it doesn't feel like God is with me. And as a matter of fact, if this is what it means for God to be with me, God needs to go join the Midianites. It would serve us a lot better if he did. Well, that's not exactly what Gideon says. We don't know what he's thinking, but... What's expressed in the scriptures not far from that. He says to the angel, but sir, but sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are the wonderful deeds that our ancestors told about what God did for them? Delivered them from their enemies. No, God has cast us off and given us over to the hand of Midian. I'm afraid that you and I, are not unlike Gideon in this respect. Sometimes we assume that God really isn't with us unless everything is going to suit us, unless we're living in prosperity and health and happiness, unless we're experiencing God's love and power. How can God be with us if we're not? Conversely, we assume that if things are really negative in our lives, if we're taking it on the chin, if we're living with poverty or injustice or unhappiness or defeat or humiliation, then that can only mean that God has abandoned us, right? And if not to the Midianites, to some modern-day oppressor, equally vile. And so we sit around in our misery and our self-pity, feeling rejected by God and feeling rejected by others, suffering the humiliation that we have only brought upon ourselves. We turned our backs on God... We did the very things God told us not to do, and now we're living with the consequences of those decisions. There used to be a popular bumper sticker many years ago. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it said, if God seems far away, guess who moved? <laughs> guess who moved if God seems far away? I'm sure that there are some of you who are here this morning that are going through a bad time in your life. And maybe if you had the gumption of Gideon, if someone said to you like the preacher that the Lord is with you, uh, you would just be astounded. And you would probably respond either in cynicism or in anger. How can you say the Lord is with me? My life is coming apart. The creditors are at my heels. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are driving me crazy. I've ruined my health, my reputation by something stupid I've done. There are countless experiences and instances in life when circumstances, if we allow them, will blind us to the very presence of God in our midst. This was part of Gideon's problem. 
He's probably thinking in days before the prosperity gospel that the only sign of God's favor and blessing was that things are going well. I'm rich, I'm healthy, I'm getting along well. That's a sign of God's favor and God's blessing. But a later and older and a wiser Gideon will come to see the truth, and that is that the stars always shine brightest on the nights that are darkest. And this was a dark night in the life of Israel. Her grain fields had been wasted, her fig trees robbed, her vines stripped of their olives. Her enemies had invaded, they were an occupied territory now. But the Lord had not abandoned them. To the contrary, they had abandoned God. And this is simply the consequences which they were warned about earlier. The Lord is with you. How incredible a statement the angel made to Gideon. And the second thing that the angel says is even more amazing. He addresses him as you mighty warrior. You man or woman of value. You mighty hero. Different versions of the Bible express, express it differently. But if it seemed ridiculous to Gideon to believe that the God, his God was with him and with Israel during this time, how much more absurd would it seem to him to be addressed as a mighty warrior? Here I am. Hiding like a common criminal, foraging like a rat for my children's supper. I ran away with my tail between my legs, hiding out from these people that terrify me. How can you call me a mighty warrior? To be sure, Gideon doesn't see himself in that light. When Gideon looked in a reflection, he would see only the person he thought he was. But when God looked at Gideon, he saw something quite different. God saw in Gideon what he could become what he could be if he relied upon the presence and the power of God that were available to him. He is not unlike Moses at the burning bush when he was called to be the deliverer of the Hebrews. And he too came up with every excuse in the world why he shouldn't be the one chosen. Gideon does the same thing. He says, why me? I'm from Manasseh. That's the weakest clan in all of uh, Israel. And not only am I from the tribe of Manasseh, I'm the run of the litter. I'm the weakest member of my clan. But isn't that just like God? God frequently chooses the unlikely, the weak, the ones not expected to stand out. So that when God brings about the victory, everyone will understand it wasn't because of human strength. It was because of God's empowerment and God's grace and God's majesty. Let me ask you, who tells you who you are? Is it your peers? Is it your colleagues in your profession? Is it your friends at school? Is it your political party? Is it your denomination? Who defines you? Who should define you? Should it not be the one who created you? Who knows exactly who you are and what you are and what you can be? Do you look into the mirror and see what God sees, or do you see only what you see? Do your circumstances define you? Does your wealth or lack of it, your health or lack of it, do any of these things really say who you are or what you can be and do? There is a great deal of difference between genuine humility and self-abasement. It is as wrong to think too little of ourselves as it is to think too much of ourselves. 
We are created in the very image of God. We are people who have the ability to make choices and decisions. We're unlike God's other creatures who operate by instinct and design. We can resist God's guidance. He gives us the freedom to do so. We can rise above any false limits of heredity or environment and become agents of the divine force behind the universe. That is to say, when the Lord God Almighty lives in us and through us, there is no limit to what we can be or become or accomplish. How do you see yourself? The great Scottish poet Bobby Burns was sitting in church one day and he saw a louse on the bonnet of the woman sitting in front of him and he penned those immortal words that I'll say in English rather than old Scots. Oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us? It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion. Well, perhaps, if we could see ourselves as others see us, maybe we would be spared the risk of thinking too highly of ourselves, sitting in church with vermin crawling on our bonnet. But on the other hand, if we had the grace to see ourselves as God sees us, then perhaps we would be spared that equally disastrous fate of thinking too little of ourselves and missing out on all that God could do in us and through us. Reinhold Niebuhr, in his wonderful and profound book, The Nature and Destiny of Man, says that human beings ascend by going to one of two extremes ordinarily. Either we think too much of ourselves and we live in arrogance and pride and power, or we think too little of ourselves and we live in self-pity and misery and impotence. Who defines you? Who tells you who you really are? God saw Gideon as a mighty warrior. And when Gideon came to accept God's assessment of who he was, he went forth in the strength of the Lord. He chopped down and destroyed the idols that were the source of the problems in Israel at that time. And in the weeks to come, we're going to discover how he joined together with a small band of comrades and defeated the Midianite oppressors. God is with you, mighty warrior. Can you hear God saying that to you today? Despite what your circumstances are, despite what you think of your time or ability to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God, can you be used to help tear down those idols that our culture raises which distract us from God and God's purposes? Can we be used to liberate people who are enslaved by all manner of things, ignorance, oppression, disease, you name it? Do you know that you have the power to make a difference in God's world? The Apostle Paul puts it this way, we who have this spiritual treasure are like common clay pots in order to show that the supreme power belongs to God and not to us. We can accomplish great things not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And God simply wants to use us as God's instruments in the church and in the world. Maybe God is calling you to help teach in vacation Bible school. Maybe you're being called like some who are being uh, ordained and installed this morning to serve the church in some capacity as an officer. Maybe you're being called to go on the mission field to serve 
a purpose to join one of our mission teams that are reaching out. I don't know what God may be calling you to be or to do, but I know he's calling you to be or do something. Or you would not be a part of his family. Because the reason he chooses us is so that he can use us. People who wonder whether or not they're saved often ask me, how do you know? I say, well, what are you doing? How are you being used? That's a sign of your salvation. Friends, if we are ever to tempted to think that, that God has abandoned us because things are going poorly in our lives, we need to open up and read the sixth chapter of Judges. Because here we find a disheartened man who had never fought a battle, who had never faced an enemy, who had no special training. One, however, who is called and equipped to be a mighty warrior and deliverance. His only strength is the realization that God is with him. Not because he felt God was with him, but because God said he was with him. We'll look next week at how Gideon questions this call. It's so humorous and instructive, I think. But with the knowledge that God was with him, when he finally came to accept it, he moved out and he made a difference for all of Israel and indeed for the world. So as I draw this first message to a close, <clears throat> I have one question for you this morning. Actually, one statement to you. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us the grace to see ourselves as you see us and to become the people in the church that we potentially are. So indwell us by your presence and your power that we shall be a light to the nations and a joy to our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.